standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I saw the sea. What better sea did you see? Saw a bit of Leon Sea and it was very windy but I love the ocean. It puts a lot of stuff into perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, is it the ocean? Is it, it's the sea. It's definitely the North Sea, isn't that? I think it's the estuary, but don't piss on my parade, mate. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm going to try very hard to get through this without interruption from Joan who showed her bum to every single person I interviewed last week. I don't know whether to give a shout out to new listeners that that is one of your cats or whether to just leave it as it could be your mum. Yeah. Oh my gosh, she shouted the whole way through loads of interviews. I feel like I should put that out as an early disclaimer. There's some stuff coming that you can just hear her in the background of. <laughs> Later on, I catch up with Lavinia Stennett, founder and CEO of the Black Curriculum, and we chat about why black British history should be mandatory teaching in schools and find out more about the campaign to make it so. I talked to award-winning novelist Elif Shafak about her new non-fiction book, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division, and why we should all spend a bit more time engaging with people we don't agree with. Hmm, controversial topic. And it's fishing, shit yeah, in <laughs> Dunleavy Does Disaster as we watch The Perfect Storm. But first, back to school, the US election and footy, 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 ball, ball, ball. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, which is severely hampering my plan to never watch the news again. Please, God, make it all stop. Thank you. Now, please. Uh, seconded and thirded ad nauseum. I just wanted to follow up on that story I did last week about men being spared jail for child abuse images. In that piece, I pointed out that although both men in the story were former Labour politicians, other political parties were available. To reiterate that point, I'd like to mention that last week a former Tory party campaign manager has also been in court for possessing indecent images of children. Mark Larigo, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, it's how I'm going to say it, had collected more than 1,500 images, including some showing babies and other involving bestiality and torture. He too received no jail time, just a suspended term and 150 hours of unpaid work. Meanwhile, former MP Eric Joyce is back on Twitter like he wasn't just found guilty of looking at an abuse video of children as young as 12 months old. So he's clearly taken the message that he's allowed back into polite society. Although how polite Twitter is, is another matter. Mm. Although he is now taking advantage of Twitter's feature, permitting users to stop people replying to his comments. So that's all worked out well, right? It's like he'll never be held properly to account, Hannah. Somebody uh, attempted to engage me in a conversation about how much shame Eric Joy should feel about this on Twitter at the weekend and I had a small back and forth before telling him that perhaps his sympathies ought to be for the victims and that I was done with the conversation. What, what, I just, like, my brain can't compute how someone can say, well, actually I'm going to see it from his side. There you have it. Welcome to Twitter 2020 uh, and more uh, on that later. But for now, let's look at UK politics. Yeah. Uh, for someone at the head of a party that seemingly couldn't organise a two-ticket raffle, Boris Johnson's holiday planning neatly saw him out of action during the whole of the A-level results shit show. He's back now, 
just in time to insist parents send their children back to the classroom in England, Wales and Northern Ireland in September. It remains a mystery as to why he's not letting Education Secretary Gavin Williamson handle this one. Mm. Presumably Gav's not finished writing, thank goodness no one in the Cabinet ever has to actually resign, ever, I-D-S-T, a hundred times on the blackboard. After which he'll be receiving ten of the best from a dribbling mm. Michael Gove before being bested in a game of soggy biscuit by the most virile backbenchers. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, it might not make sense to you and me, Hannah, but that's the kind of discipline that makes Conservative politicians the heroes they are. Anyway... Johnson is back at the helm, impressing that it's vitally important for children to get back to school and rolling out his favourite phrase of 2020. Yep, you guessed it, BJ is following the science. Can I just say, BJ's following the science sounds like a section from Blue Peter or, you know, (laughs) something on CBBS. It's probably about the same intellect level as well, isn't it? Yeah, after this, when it's all sorted, he's going to go back to making Tracy Island out of sticky back plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Although this time he's even gone so far as to explain which science he means. Mm. The UK's four chief medical officers have all signed a joint statement alongside deputy chief medical officers to reassure parents that schools could mitigate risks during the pandemic. Professor Chris Whitty said that children were more likely to be harmed by not returning to school next month than if they caught coronavirus. He cited evidence of children much less commonly needing hospital treatment or becoming severely ill with coronavirus than adults. And indeed, according to the Office for National Statistics' latest data on ages, there were 10 deaths recorded as due to COVID-19 among those aged 19 and under in England and Wales between March and June, and 46,725 deaths among those aged 20 and over. Scottish schools are in their second week back, and while looking to Scotland to see how that results algorithm worked out didn't seem to occur to the Tories, teething problems that have come up there, such as bubbles preventing friends from mixing, teachers feeling vulnerable, toilet access, could potentially get ironed out before September. The thing I think is the biggest dissonance for kids, particularly older kids, and that looks likely to cause problems, is that behaviour and social distancing within schools is going to look very different to, and therefore potentially undermine, what's being recommended outside of schools. So you wear your mask on public transport to get to class, if that's what you need to do. You're not allowed any more than eight people around your house. But yeah, don't worry about the packed corridors and dinner halls. I just don't think it'll add up for them. As for the parents, well, anecdotally, two of my mum friends, each with one kid in primary and one in secondary school, felt pretty differently about it. One was feeling a bit wobbly, actually, but resigned to the fact it was going to happen. And the other, and I quote, can't fucking wait. Yeah, I have to say that's been the attitude of most of my friends with children, which is almost all of my friends, is that they want their kids back at school. Partly because the argument that that the divide between privately educated and comprehensive kids is going to widen and most of their kids can go at comprehensive schools, you know. And I think partly because of the age that a lot of them are. A lot of them are at crucial stages. My nephew, for example, should be starting his GCSEs when he arrives back in September. I'd like him to get as much time in school as he can before he sits his GCSEs because that's going to affect his whole future. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. (sighs) Well, over to another shit show. Right. So here we are. End of August. How did that happen? I don't know. Which means the US election is just round the corner and we probably need to start paying attention to it. Something I've largely been avoiding because I'm currently pretty confident Donald J. Trump is going to win. 
and it makes me sad to think about it. I'm with you on that one. So why the negativity? Well, this is not an election like any other. You know, when candidates say something about things like policies, this is an election between man A, who claims to be the best president ever in the whole of human history, and (laughs) man B, whose biggest selling point is that he isn't man A. Which is, in fairness, a huge selling point, (laughs) surely. It seems instead that the culture war raging across the Atlantic will sway more votes than anything coming out of the mouths of either Trump or Joe Biden. More specifically, three things which I'm going to try to discuss here briefly and then hopefully expand on as the election drags on. The first is the media. After the election of 2016, much of the US media cast itself as a new form of journalism, resistance or activist journalism, as it has since been named, which seemed a perfectly understandable reaction to the election of a bullshitter of Trump's calibre to the highest office particularly when he publicly slags off journalists all the live long day. Mm -hmm. However, four years on and the left wing media is still in the same stance, even if, as is the case at the New York Times, this is causing internal division at the organisation. The primary aim now seems to be to reveal Trump as corrupt, racist or stupid, something he does perfectly well all by (laughs) himself on Twitter. (laughs) In fact, all this has done is reinforce what Trump says about media organisations. So when he says the media hates him, journalists try to chip him up and everyone is biased against him. Well, it's largely true. Yeah. The second influencer on the outcome of this election is corporate America. And I have an example from this week that hopefully proves this point. With Goodyear, the tyre company, becoming embroiled in a row with Trump after it banned MAGA attire at its workplace. Trump immediately responded, as is his want, calling for a boycott of the company Goodyear, misspelling the word tyres repeatedly, because, well, because here's where we are now. Yep. Goodyear said its rules forbid activism that falls, and I quote, outside the scope of racial justice and equity issues, which means you can wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt to work, or a Some People Are Gay Get Over It t-shirt, but you can't support the current president of America. Now, I hope you all know that I'm exactly the person who wears a T-shirt announcing my (laughs) progressive politics. In fact, I'd rather go to work shirtless than support Trump. Tits out for Trump, or tits out (laughs) against Trump, that would be. But the point remains that a major employer in the US has handed the right a weapon to wield against the left. By telling its staff that only some of them have opinions worth supporting, it pushes them and others like them towards Trump rather than away from him. Nice work, good year. Hmm. And finally, the third thing affecting the result of the election is going to be social media tribalism. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at Mr. Megabucks himself, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, and what he's been up to in the last few weeks, which has included putting a Black Lives Matter banner on Amazon touting a $10 million donation that the company made to a group of racial and social justice organisations. Good job, Bezos, right? A week or so later, Bezos made an Instagram post showing a vile racist email, one of many he'd been sent from people claiming they would never shop at Amazon again. People, eh? Indeed. And so what has this taught us? Racists bad, Bezos good. Well, I wouldn't be so sure on that. What's actually happened here, if you want my view, when you're going to get it if you don't, is that a billionaire (laughs) has been able to create some sort of hero role for himself 
in which he is prepared to withstand abusive emails because of his outstanding generosity of spirit. Ha. Yeah, that's the same Amazon that's been the subject of endless hand-wringing over its ability to avoid paying its taxes and its dubious employment practices. But that, for now, seems to have been forgotten because the company has thrown what amounts to small change at a social justice group that we all like, making the left look like hypocrites and driving yet more people to Trump. More news as it very much happens. I would like to opt out of of everything, please. Are you tired? Spelled (laughs) T-Y-R-E-D. Only if it's all in capital letters, then absolutely. Sad. Would you like some good news? Oh, please. I'm going to stick with kids for my good news. Results of a new study from the University of Bristol came as a big surprise as researchers discovered that anxiety levels among 13 and 14 year olds have actually fallen during lockdown. Researchers questioned a thousand year nine students from 17 secondary schools across the southwest of England in May this year and compared those findings to a survey taken in October last year. In that October, 54% of 13 to 14-year-old girls and 26% of boys of the same age said they felt anxious. Clearly, the difference between the sexes is also a big story, Mm. but that's one for another day. If we jump to May and several weeks of closed school gates amid lockdown, and the proportion dropped to 45% of the girls and 18% of the boys. Dr Judy Kidger from the University of Bristol said... Our findings raise questions about the role of the school environment in explaining rises in mental health difficulties among teenagers in recent years. As schools reopen, we need to consider ways in which schools can be more supportive of mental health for all students. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you'd have thought that it would... I was about to say you'd have thought it would definitely go up because obviously it has been a stressful time, particularly, I guess they're not of exam-taking age, but just seeing their older peers going through all of this shit but i was pretty miserable at school so actually not having to go to school would have made me much happier it doesn't sound like from my earlier news story though that the parents feel the same way given that they're all really excited for the kids going back to school well clearly yeah (laughs) everyone loves their kids but not that much right more news next time well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week It's that time of the week where I borrow Jen's Jenny off the blocks hat and head towards the world of women's sport. And it will probably come as absolutely no fucking surprise whatsoever that women's sport hasn't fared as well as men's sport during the pandemic. Let's do a Jen and look at football specifically. Women's football finally came back at the weekend as Arsenal women took on Paris Saint-Germain feminine. Apologies for my appalling accent. Paris Saint-Germain. What Hannah said, uh, it was was 2-1 to PSG, if you're wondering, in the quarterfinal of the UEFA Women's Champions League, which was the first competitive match in months. But why has it taken longer for women's football to return than for the blokes? Money, innit? Financial reasons meant women's football couldn't come back as early as a men's game. There's just not the investment What's more, the lack of visibility of women's sport this summer risks undoing work to improve funding for women's elite sport. And as we well know, less funding means less visibility, means less funding. And so the snake continues to eat its tail.
I am joined on the phone by Lavinia Stennett, founder and CEO of the Black Curriculum, a social enterprise that delivers black British history through the arts, in and out of schools across the UK. Lavinia, hello. Hi, good morning. First of all, can you tell us a bit about how the Black Curriculum came about? The Black Curriculum came about because I was studying African Studies at university at SOAS. I was learning a lot of black and African history, so black British histories and also histories from the continent. And I was really just surrounded by knowledge that wasn't solely Eurocentric. And I think for me, that wasn't opening into the ways in which knowledge had been offered, produced, and also, I guess, taught to me at an earlier age. And I never really connected with the material until I got to university. Mm -hmm. So then when I went to study abroad in New Zealand, I was again immersed in um, Maori cosmology and Maori's art of the indigenous people of New Zealand. And I was just surrounded by such, I guess, fortitude and a knowledge of the history of colonialism, but also Maori cosmology, as I said. And it was very powerful to hear from um, Maoris themselves about their own culture and the ways in which, you know, they see the world. And I think being immersed in that really allowed me to understand my own identity. And I think there's this thing that sometimes you have to come out of your surroundings to properly understand your own identity. Mm-hmm. And I think it was important that every young person, regardless of their age, is able to learn about their history and culture and British history more accurately. And in a way that is, yeah, it's, it's taught in a way where it's relevant to them. So, yeah, that's really how it came about. And, yeah, I connected with friends and other researchers at the time who helped to build the curriculum that we have at the moment. So, yeah, it's been just over a year and a half. And how do you deliver your curriculum? It really just depends on who we're delivering it to. So we have a 12-topic curriculum that is based on different themes, so from migration to art history. The way in which we actually deliver it is based on the arts. So and we take a very, I guess, yeah, engaged approach when we're teaching so that mm-hmm. young people are not feeling disconnected from the material and we encourage self-learning. We actually do that through poetry and giving young people a voice to actually think about how this material is relevant to them and their own experiences, white and black, so that they're able to really connect with it and each other in the long run as well. So it's a lot of, yes, yeah, student interaction, collaboration and the art primarily. I mean, it sounds like common sense, but British schools aren't really doing very well at all when it comes to teaching black history. Can you give us a little rundown of where Mm. British schools currently stand when it comes to teaching black history? Mm. We have a fractured system. So there are schools, there are state schools, and then there are private schools and independent schools as well, who, unlike state schools, have the flexibility to teach whatever they put on their curriculum. For example, some state schools might choose to follow the national curriculum. And when that's done, we still find that a lot of schools still are not engaging with black history throughout the entire curriculum. Uh, We might see a reference towards black history along the lines of key stage three, learning the transatlantic slave trade. And again, the the kind of perspective that's coming from is very Eurocentric and it dehumanizes the existence and the livelihoods of black people. But from what I know, that there are there are individual teachers in schools who have been and who are pushing for black history. But of course, there's no approach for schools like nationwide and as a collective to kind of think about engaging with black history in a way that is measured by success and also on yeah the outputs are relevant for exam boards and and the assessments of students as well. So yeah, there's not really an impetus in schools as a, as a large kind of network to teach black history at the moment. 
you're a young person, aren't you? I'm old lady time. You're a young person. Um, <laughs> I wasn't taught very much about black history at all in school. We covered Windrush, but that was pretty much it. Mm. There was obviously some stuff about slavery and the abolition of slavery, but empire was still almost something to be proud of, which is just absolutely mm. ridiculous. Can I ask what you were taught about black history at school when you were attending, like high school? Yeah, so in secondary school, I don't really have much of a recollection of learning about black history specifically. Um, In primary school, I do remember watching Roots, and I do also remember, and this is quite a rare case, learning um, about black pioneers and inventors. You know, we had a project to do that was based on bringing more awareness to them, to which my mum had helped me curate these really lovely collages of like Lewis Latimer and thinking about scientists and people who are overlooked in, in our history book. So mm-hmm. I think like, apart from that project, I don't really have much of a, a deep um, experience of learning any black history at all, other than roots and again, the narrative of, of our history starting with slavery. Um, and I think this is the case for many other young people as well, that we've come into society not really understanding our history or understanding the ways in which Britain has interacted with black people from the beginning, when I say the beginning, going back to Roman times. Yeah. And I'm sure even before. So there are, you know, there are a lack of, yeah, engagements with our history in in schools. And yeah, it stayed with us. It stayed with me for sure. Yeah. So why is it so, so vital for all pupils across the ages that Mm. black history becomes embedded in the national curriculum? I think it's so key. I think cases such as the Stevens Lawrence, murder, I think it's really important that, you know, we don't as a society continue moving towards the normalising of injustices and we've seen it happen over and over, whether that's just individuals or collectives of black people being treated and dehumanised. And I think we all play a part in the society and it's important that as young people we see ourselves as agents of change and and by doing so, by learning black history we actually are thinking about how to communicate and how to connect better with cultures which will bring on better community cohesion and and better understandings really that would allow us to not get back to those places that we've seen in the past. So I think, yeah, it's just important for everyone really to just build more empathy and come together because this is who we are. We're Britain and we are multicultural, but we need to definitely engage with each other in in more real and authentic ways. Absolutely that. And and the astonishing thing is that it's not been acted upon, despite several government reports, including most recently the Windrush Review from earlier this year, recommending yeah. that black British history being taught will help prevent racism. Yep. And it was in the McPherson report from over 20 years ago, I think, like, we've seen a lot of people campaign and put the rationale for this in, in reports, but time over time, um, the government haven't taken a clear approach, and I think it's it's about time now that you know, as a society, we move towards positive change and we take on those recommendations and, and listen to, to listen to what people are saying because these are people that have experienced it and also just witnessed the, yeah, the effects of not learning black history and think there's nothing, there's nothing more raw than that. So it's time that the government was to listen to, to the calls that are being made. Despite incredible support from the general public for your campaigns and to get black history being taught as mandatory, the government response back at the end of June to your campaign was really disappointing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was very um, stale. I think we were very not surprised with the first response, which basically said that the, the curriculum as it is is broad, balanced and flexible, which is underpinned by the notion of a laissez-faire government and 
you know, that they are not going to intervene to, to change the national curriculum, but rather allow schools who they say have the flexibility to teach it to do so. But f- from the perspective of the students and also the teachers, if teachers are not encouraged to through um, having black issues reflected in the national curriculum and exam board specifications, it just won't get taught. So yeah. that brought on a second response, which we received on the 29th of June from Nick Gibb, who's the Minister for School Standards, and he basically acknowledged that, you know, education is the root of tackling racism, and there's more that can be done, but he cannot meet at this point in time because of diary pressure. So I hope that that was an acknowledgement, but also a commitment to kind of thinking about how they can engage with organisations like ours and the Running Me Trust to think about improving education for all young people. So what's the plan moving forward, Lavinia? What's going to happen? I think just to do the work, we've been doing it for over a year and a half. I think it's been really well accepted by a lot of teachers and, and parents. And I think it's important that we continue, regardless of whether the government have, are going to decide to, to support us or not, we continue with this work and impact young people around the country um, who need this. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about hashtag TBH365. TBH365, yeah, that's our hashtag. It's a code for standing for Teach Black History 365. But also, to be honest, I think that really comes to the heart of our nation and understanding why our histories are not accurately represented on the curriculum and why are we not being honest. I think um, it's time for us to be honest, 365, and also think about how to teach black history. 365 as well, across the curriculum. So um, you can find the hashtag on Twitter, on Instagram, and find loads of resources as well as um, information as as to how you can engage with black history as a parent or a teacher. So, yeah, how can the general public help? How can we get involved? How can we help push your campaign, get change Mm. made? I think most importantly, writing to schools. I think confronting senior leaderships in schools is really key because there's a lot of, yeah, decisions that can be made that can affect change on that level. And I think if if we were as as a community to answer those changes specifically to the curriculum to be made and also thinking about how those decisions are made so who are making those decisions and yeah just really pushing schools locally in your community to, to teach back history um, is one secondly I think also just encouraging young people around you and your family to kind of engage with back history as well there are many YouTube videos that we have and online resources that we're also extending that you can access on our website theblackcurriculum.com there are many others as well online and YouTube more generally and I think lastly just pushing for us to work in schools is really key because it's really hard sometimes to connect with schools so I think yeah just mentioning our names to schools so that they can get us in to work with their young people and donating as well so yeah I think those are the four ways mainly. I think the public tend to forget and this comes from someone who does not have any children but they tend to forget that actually you can have an influence on schools. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Schools are just another public body. And I think it's important that regardless if you're a student or a teacher, we we do shape the decisions that are being made for our young people. And what else are you up to? At the moment, I am just literally just focusing on the black curriculum and also just trying to write more as well. So engaging more on the side of just learning really for myself about black history. You've already mentioned the website, but can you tell us where people can find out more about what you're doing, please? Yeah, sure. So you can go to our Instagram, which is The Black Curriculum. Same on Facebook, The Black Curriculum, and Twitter is Curriculum Black. Also, our website is theblackcurriculum.com. You can also find some of our resources on TES and FutureLearn as well. So those are websites for teachers and parents as well who want to learn more about black history. 
Thank you so much for all the hard and incredibly important work that you're doing. And while I do think that they're a bit of a sewer, I do hope the government takes some sort of action sooner rather than later because it just mm-hmm. it just smacks of common sense <laughs> to teach history properly. It does, yes. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm full of hope. Oh, I need some of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting to me. You're welcome. Thank you. Hello listeners, Jen here to tell you about the many, many things you can do to help Standard Issue. We know times are tough and usually we will be asking you to chip us a couple of quid via our Patreon page. Which, if you do want to chip us a couple of quid to help us continue the excellent work we do promoting excellent women, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue. However, there are plenty of other things you can do to help us that will cost you absolutely sweet FA, including giving us a follow on Instagram. We'd like that very much because we're trying to get more followers there. And there's loads of cats and rats and dogs and stuff, so what's not to like, frankly? You can find us there, at Standard Issue Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Standard Issue UK, or indeed on Facebook, where we are Standard Issue Magazine. Also, it's super helpful if you just hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, which means, A, you'll never miss an excellent episode of Ear Fodder, and also, we get some of that sweet, sweet advertising dollar. So, guys... You know what to do. Hello, Hannah here, sitting in my house in Cambridge on a day when, had things been different this year, I would have been in the fine city of Edinburgh, enjoying the delights both of the Fringe Festival and of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which we always go to as well because it is brilliant. Now, obviously, things weren't the way they were this year. Edinburgh International Book Festival does, however, continue online. It started on the 15th of August. It goes on until the 31st of August. Find out more at edbookfest.co.uk. On Saturday, that's coming Saturday, the 29th of August, uh, 8.30, they are playing host to the excellent Turkish author Elif Shafak who will be talking about her latest non-fiction book, which is out this week, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. And because they're such lovely folks, they put us in touch with Elif. And I had about half an hour on the phone with her to chat. If you don't know who Elif is, she now lives in the UK. Uh, She's a Booker Prize shortlisted writer. She is famous all over the world. However, remains a very contentious figure in Turkey, which we do discuss. And I would absolutely suggest that you check out her books because she is brilliant. Anyway, that interview is coming up. But just again, if you want to check out who else is on, they always have a brilliant lineup. The Edinburgh International Book Festival is edbookfest.co.uk. We are here at what you describe as a, a threshold moment, questioning what post-corona world is going to look like. This is actually the first book I've read on what we're living through now. And this is very clear, it's insightful, it's beautifully written. You've made it look easy. Given that you are also living through the same chaos and anxiety and panic we are, was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. Even though this is a short book, believe me, it wasn't easy to write it. And I had something else, something quite different in my mind when I started thinking about this book a while ago. 
But then when the pandemic hit and then the lockdown started, I put that idea, the outline that I had in mind aside, and I decided to start everything from scratch. And in a way, I wanted to, first of all, understand my own anxieties, what I was going through, because there were moments when I found myself questioning, what does it mean to be a writer, you know, at this moment in Mm. time? There were times when I lost faith in what I was doing. So I decided to be honest about all these negative emotions that I myself was struggling with. But then, of course, when you lift your head and you look around, you realize everybody's struggling with negative emotions and you're not alone at all. And that was my starting point. It's certainly an excellent read. There are a number of points in this that I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with, but I think none so much as the statement The moment we stop listening to diverse opinion is also when we stop learning, which is an increasingly unpopular opinion. Since you've written this, freedom of speech has become a really hot topic. I mean, if we look at the response to the Harper's letter about freedom of speech, I wonder if perhaps because I think a lot of people believe that freedom of speech at the moment is people who want to be racist saying I want to be able to be racist and they forget that in some places in the world it's the yeah. it's the other side of it so I wonder if we could briefly talk about what happened to you in Turkey when you published The Bastard of Istanbul and if we could talk about whether that changed or perhaps reinforced your views on freedom of speech and I and I really thank you for asking this question And I'm so glad you mentioned these cultural or social differences because even the word freedom of speech can mean different things to different people as you travel across countries. As you said, sometimes here people think freedom of speech means I can say racist comments or sexist comments, whereas for us, and I'm going to say us maybe generalizing, but I would say people who believe in democracy, people who believe in pluralism and live in countries like Turkey or Venezuela or Brazil or the Philippines, and the list is so long. For us, freedom of speech is actually defending some of the very credentials, one of the basic pillars of democracy, you know, because without freedom of speech, you don't have democracy. It is also a fight against authoritarianism. It is also a fight against populist nationalism, and one single narrative that's being imposed on us. But if I may come back to what happened or to my personal experience, I think I do know that to be a writer in a country like Turkey is is not easy because words are very heavy in Turkey. And whatever you write about, you might end up offending this authority or that authority. It is very difficult to question the official narrative And anyone who does that is immediately labeled as traitor or betrayer. Turkey, as you know, is a country with a very long history and a rich and complex history. Mm. But that doesn't mean we have a nuanced understanding of history. Just the opposite. It's a society of collective amnesia. There's a huge void. And that void is filled in with ultranationalist interpretations of history or Islamist interpretations of history. And for me as a writer, it was always important to say, but wait a second, what happened to the stories of minorities? How would you feel had you been born maybe a Jewish miller or an Armenian silversmith or a concubine? If you were a concubine in the harem, if you were a woman in the Ottoman Empire, how would you feel? What would the story be like for you? So to me, those are incredibly important questions, micro questions that have big importance. 
So when you do that, you realize there are so many questions you're not allowed to ask in Turkey. And one of the biggest taboos is the Armenian genocide. So when I wrote about Armenian genocide through the eyes of women, Turkish and Armenian women generations, I wrote a novel called The Bastard of Istanbul, which tells the story, in my opinion, in a constructive way and deals with memory and amnesia. I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. Uh, we have an Article 301 in our constitution, which protects Turkishness against insults, but nobody knows what that exactly means. Mm. It's very vague, very open to misinterpretation. And it has been used against journalists, academics, scholars for many, many years. But it was the first time it was used against the work of fiction. So in a nutshell, what happened was the words of my fictional characters were taken out of the book used as evidence in the courtroom, and my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters. That went on for about a year and a half. In the end, we were all acquitted, me and the fictional characters, but still afterwards, I had to have a bodyguard for about close to two years for a work of fiction. I wish I could tell you things have gotten better since then, but I'm afraid it's the opposite, you know? And I think it's... It has become even harder now to, to, to write, to question not only political taboos, but also sexual taboos as well. In the book, you talk about we're, we're kind of in this paradox where everybody wants to be heard, but nobody actually wants to listen. And I wonder how you think we've got here where we are essentially scared of other opinions. I mean, it's it's very easy to say social media, but do you think there is something else at play? Oh, def- definitely. I think there are several factors at play. One of them is inequality. We need to talk about inequality and inequalities of all kinds, whether it's racial inequality, gender inequality, ethnic, class, economic inequality, but also the inequalities between our centres, city centres, sorry, and the countryside, yeah. you know, opportunities. It's just not fair that so much capital, so many resources are concentrated in one or two places, and the rest of the country is almost forgotten. So there's lots we need to question. Inequality triggers a reaction in people, understandably. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I think we're living in, a, in an age in which everything feels uncertain, unpredictable. Even the ground beneath our feet is not solid anymore. And that kind of uncertainty or extreme complexity, again, understandably, creates this instinct in us, we want to go inside smaller units. We want to be surrounded with sameness, thinking we will be safer. But that's an illusion. But still, there is that illusion out there. And unfortunately, it's a golden moment for populist demagogues because they enter into the picture and they say, you know what, don't worry, I'm going to make things simple for you. Yeah. Just follow. So those also contribute. And then the social media, digital technologies, which divide us very bitterly into echo chambers where we only hear our own echoes. We need to be aware of all that and and we need to surpass those tribes that we're constantly being pushed into. I saw something recently on Twitter that somebody had written, I think it was linked to the Harper's Letter, and it was being retweeted by someone and it said, I've read this so you don't have to. And I thought, it's funny how we've got to a world where that is seen as a positive thing that somebody said, I've read and praised this and I'm going to tell you what they say in this article. 
rather than actually me reading it, me learning what they're saying, me knowing what they're saying, me knowing specifically why they're racist or why they're, they're sexist, and then me using that information to further my opinions or to learn something about what the other side is saying. I think it's become very, very easy to take a back step and just just accept that certain people are saying that, you know, so-and-so, they're bound to be saying something racist. When, in fact, if you actually engage with their argument, you'll learn way more about it. It's not going to make you racist reading it, but it will teach you something about the way they think, which hopefully will mean that you could attack their arguments. In the, I mean, you know this, but yet this seems to be something that, that we are losing as a skill, as, as a population. And, and also, maybe when you read the letter, you're going to read it in a different way mm. than I am reading. So you have your own personal gaze. I have my own personal gaze. None of it is perfect. And maybe this is one of the things that literature teaches us, especially novels taught me, because I have seen even very good friends, dear friends, reading the same novel, or couples, like they've been married for 40 years, reading the same novel, but they don't read it in the same way. Mm. Sometimes they, they, you know, they might like completely different characters or dislike completely different characters. And that's the beauty of it. So if we take that away, if we start believing in absolute truth, just because someone else said that to us, then we're losing not only our curiosity for knowledge, but the chance for learning and developing ourselves. And I find that very dangerous. I'm also not happy with the way in which we are polarized in these debates. Mm. Are you against? Are you for? There might be a few things in that letter that I agree with. There might be some mm. other things I completely disagree with. Why can't I be able to say all of them at the same yeah. time? We need to fight for these nuances. Absolutely. I think the world is lacking nuance completely. I wanted to talk to you about education, um, which I think this fits in nicely with. In your chapter about education, you make some excellent, if not quite sad points. Now, I grew up, as you did, in it seems, in a house where education was seen as the key to, number one, to self-improvement and number two, to social mobility. And within a generation, that seems to have changed somewhat I still think that it is the key to self-improvement but the question of whether or not education is going to demonstrably improve the situation of children nowadays given the debt that educating yourself now involves and also given that the job market who knows what is going to happen since you've written this obviously we've had the scandal here you live in the UK so you'll know about it about A-level results and education places and I wonder if that's again, either confirmed your opinion on the, the sort of the worth of education as it exists at the moment? I think we need to recognise the fact that our perception of the value of education has changed dramatically over the years. And part of it is also because of the fact that the things that we teach our children, young people today, are gonna, so many of that, so much of that is going to become irrelevant in the next 50 years. And yet we're not able to make those necessary changes because of bureaucratic continuity, because of paperwork. We're, we're not capable of thinking what the future is going to be like. We do know that we do know it's going to be very different. We do know that so many jobs are going to disappear. And yet we haven't reformed our education system. To me, that is a big problem. There is a hierarchy within education system that favors some disciplines, such as, for instance, maths, 
as opposed to arts or, or creativity. I've never understood that. For each and every child, the situation is different. If for one child, maths is the central passion, we should celebrate that and nurture that. But maybe for another child, it's going to be ballet. It's going to be just playing the drum, you know? So we don't, we don't have that kind of flexibility either. But primarily, of course, I, I think we need to understand how difficult it is to be young today. Mm. The youngest generations, Generation Z, the, the, however you call it, they are going through enormous pressure. And we need to talk about mental health. We need to talk about what exactly are we giving them. Our own selfishness, when the planet is burning, still we're not capable of making the right decisions urgently. They are questioning, you know, the outcome of Brexit because it's going to affect them more than the actually older generations mm. living today. So whichever way you look at it, there are so many political, economic, ecological issues that were already a burden on the shoulders of the youngest generations. On top of that, when you add this ongoing injustices or incompetences with regards to A-levels or, or reforming the education system, I think we need to understand that we're failing our younger people. And, and this is a massive issue that should be, should be a priority. To me, it's very important to understand that when I look at my grandmother's generation, the generations before, they have endured so much, whether it's a war, you know, world war, or, or sometimes depression, economic depression, incredible hardships. But they have gone through all these sufferings, believing that tomorrow was going to be better, that their own children were going to have better education. Mm. You lose that kind of trust in the future. The impact of that is enormous. And I think it also explains what we're experiencing worldwide today. Yeah, this again links nicely to talking about social media because I found it quite poignant in your book when you were talking, looking back at the the Arab Spring, sort of the golden age of Twitter, or the time that we believed that social media might actually change the world for the positive. And you use the example of, of some children, one in Egypt, who was actually called Facebook because it meant something positive yeah. to those people at that time. And that's seven years later, are we now? That the, the, the idea that social media is a positive change for good is almost dead. Do, do you think that social media can be rehabilitated for good or do you feel like we need to step away from it? I think in a way social media is a bit like the moon, it definitely has and had a bright side. And I'm not underestimating that because it does indeed connect us across borders and it can be more egalitarian. Also, let us not forget in countries where freedom of speech and freedom of press in particular is completely destroyed, social media nevertheless has pockets of resistance where we can learn from each other. Again, in countries where patriarchy is very consolidated, where women don't have equal voice in the public space, there is a digital space where many young women find more voice. And I, I'm not underestimating any of that. So it does have that bright side that we need to cultivate. However, the dark side was always there. And I think in general, we have failed to see the dark side early on. And we must now without delay. When I say dark side, I'm talking about hate speech, slander, 
the way misinformation is being spread, but also I'm talking about tech monopolies, how power is concentrated, again, in the hands of very few. All of that is very dangerous. How algorithms work without our knowledge. And again, with the exam scandal, the young people, they were chanting slogans against algorithms. And I thought that could be the slogan of our times. Yeah. You know? <laughs> algorithms affect our lives in so many ways and in such a sinister way. We're not even aware of it. It's beyond our control, knowledge, permission. All of that is problematic. And we need to have those serious conversations now without delay. So the reason why I'm putting emphasis on the dark side is because we have delayed for so long. Yeah. I'm not underestimating the bright side that it has. You know, look at us. We're connecting in some way or another through digital technologies right now. This is how we hear our voice. So that, too, is important. But my God, the, the dark side is out there and, and we need to be very aware and alert about that. Now, you've mentioned your grandmother and you were raised by two women, by your grandmother and your mother. And I know you believe strongly that sisterhood is a powerful force. So I wanted to know how you think sisterhood could be used to find a way forward. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think it's so crucial. And again, we have seen it, whether it's with Me Too or whether we've seen it with the political rallies in the States, across Europe, all around the world, in India, in Turkey, in the Middle East. There is something there that I think for, very, very crucial for women of all generations, all age groups. Maybe we know so well that we can go backwards in time. We know so well that history doesn't necessarily always move in a linear, progressive way. And we also know almost instinctively that when countries go backwards, one of the first rights that will be completely demolished will be women's rights. Right. So and we are experiencing this backlash against both women's rights, but also, in my opinion, LGBTQ rights, even in countries like Spain or Italy, where we thought we would never see this with the Vox movement in Spain, hiring buses with pictures of Hitler and writing underneath, you know, with a hashtag Feminazi, claiming that feminists have gone too far, or in in Italy with Salvini, you know, organizing family conferences Mm. with money coming from evangelical organizations, saying feminists have gone too far, they're destroying Italian family values. The same debate in Turkey, saying feminists are, you know, destroying Turkish family values, whatever that means. I can go on and on and on. So there is a backlash. Did we make progress? Yes, we did, thanks to generations before us. But it would be a huge mistake not to say, A, that there is a backlash. And secondly, the things even we are used to in terms of our rights can be taken away so easily if we do not care about them and if we do not fight for them. So I think we have to be more engaged citizens. And I'm not interested in partisan politics, even party politics. I'm just saying about core fundamental democratic values, we need to speak up. Yeah. In the book, you do talk about how words have become kind of fluid, what the definition of certain words mean. And you pose a, a number of questions in there as what, what, what do these words mean to you? One of them is democracy. One of them is freedom. The one I found most interesting was happiness because I feel at the moment some of us are in a situation where we're wondering whether happiness was that thing that we had before 
was that happiness and we just didn't realise it was happiness. And so I wanted to pose that question to you. What does happiness look like to you? Happiness, maybe rather than something I can achieve once and for all, it, it is it is a constant journey, you know. But within that journey, if there is love, if there is friendship, if there is sisterhood, if there is some inner peace, inner satisfaction, maybe an inward journey as well as an outward journey, I think that is as close as I can get to happiness. And also freedom. There has to be freedom. Yeah. There is no happiness without freedom. There is no happiness without dignity. We cannot expect people to be free or to be happy if we don't acknowledge and respect their equal dignity. So there are different ways to approach happiness. But I think, as you said, many of us are going through that self-examination because the lives that we were living before, was it really normal? Is that the life you want to go back to? You know, And did it really matter maybe to finish that job in five hours as opposed to maybe taking some time off for yourself, mm-hmm. for a walk in the park, just going into the nature? It made us perhaps a little bit more appreciative of seemingly small things. And maybe we realize that happiness is actually not only in pursuing these big, big goals, but also in appreciating those small moments, seemingly small moments in life. So I'm aware that happiness has many, many layers. But one of the reasons why I raised it in the book is because are we going to seek our happiness in, you know, corporate greeds, in this constant need for more? You know, that is that's something that actually makes us very unhappy. Mm. Or are we going to be satisfied with less, but understand that by choosing that, we might be leaving a better future for our children and grandchildren. So I think it's very important how we define happiness at this moment in time. I completely agree. I have one more question for you, which is, yeah. what is next for you? Please tell me there's another book, another fiction on the horizon. <laughs> and equally, if you are writing fiction at the moment... How has been writing fiction under these circumstances? Because obviously there's a difference between writing opinion and writing. They're both writing creatively. That would be unfair to say they weren't. But there is clearly a difference. There is, there is clearly a difference. Absolutely. And, and fiction is always my, is my love, is my biggest passion. But I think I see everything as interconnected. Maybe, you know, this conversation that we have right now is going to inspire me into noticing a new angle. So oh, that would always... make me so happy. <laughs> that would make me so happy. Learning is endless, isn't it? Yeah. And that's why I don't like it when people say, you know, I read only history, I read only politics, I, re- I don't read fiction, I don't have time for fiction, I read important stuff. You, see, you hear these things all the time and it really breaks my heart because first of all, how do we make these artificial categories? And secondly, I think everything that is in life is inside fiction, is the subject of fiction. So, of course, that's my primary passion. I am writing at the moment, though very slowly. Uh, There are some days when I feel more productive, other days more anxious, uh, more in tune, trying to understand the world we're living in. So not every day is the same thing. And I think that is also part of the journey of the writing process. You know, doubt is, is incredibly important. Maybe when we lose doubt, we fall into dogma and dogmas are very dangerous, aren't they? Yeah, I think people will be relieved to know that even you wonder 
whether or not what you're writing is good because that is a common a, a common thing amongst everyone who's just struggling at home writing their novel and looking at it and thinking is this rubbish is this total rubbish I ask that to myself always yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've no doubt that it's not thank you so much for your time this has been brilliant and again it has to stay sane it's a great read I found it thoroughly refreshing in a world where lots of opinions look the same to see someone who was searching for a different angle thank you so much that really means a lot to me thank you Welcome to Dunleavy Just Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster rounds up this litany of cinematic catastrophes? Did you write that down or is that off the cuff? I wrote it down, mate. Oh, <laughs> job. good off the cuff. This week we watched 2000s, so that's a film made in the year 2000, based on a 1997 non-fiction book based on a real-life event that happened in 1991. Perfect Storm. Sorry, should have said that bit at the start. The Perfect Storm. <laughs> Directed by Wolfgang Peterson, a director who has probably one of the most eclectic careers. He made Das Boot and then he made Never Ending Story. Never Ending Story. Ah. Did everyone else want a really big flying dog? Yep. Is he a dog? They ruined it when they made Never Ending Story Part 2. Well, you ended the first one, didn't yeah. you? Like. Yeah. He lied to us. Fake news. I mean, in a lot of ways, Das Boot did feel like a never-ending story. It, <laughs> it did indeed have an end. Anyway, set in Massachusetts, it's about when a number of weather conditions coincided to make what was known as a perfect storm. And the people who were stuck out at sea when that perfect storm hit, who are, for the most part the crew of the Andrea Gale, a Massachusetts, Gloucester, Massachusetts fishing crew who were out to, to catch swordfish. Although there is some other people caught in it in a subplot that we can discuss in a bit, starring George Clooney, John Hawkes, John C. Riley. I mean, actually, good cast. It's a cracking cast. And Diane Lane and Mark Wahlberg as what appear to be a set of identical twins who are also a couple. I don't think I've ever seen two people look exactly the same quite so much in a film as these two do. You obviously haven't noticed that. I didn't pick up on that, no. I didn't. I'm thinking about it now. I'm going to have to go back. They look. Does she smack him at one point? Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's because she loves him so much. Yeah, I think think she's absolutely dreadful in this. Um, yeah, I mean, me too. quite a few people are dreadful in this, but she is egregiously dreadful in this, Diane Lane. Anyway, a boat crew goes out. They've only been back in dock a couple of days. They go back out because they haven't caught enough fish. There seems to be some level of blame perhaps put on the character played by Michael Ironside um, that they're not catching enough fish. Or on the captain, who is played by George Clooney. Interestingly, there was a number of lawsuits after this film by people saying that they weren't happy with the representation of their dead relative. Um, oh, in, in this of film. Billy Tyne, of specifically Billy, Billy the Tyne's captain. family. Also, um, the the sister of the character Sully was also unhappy of the representation of her brother as a bit of a dick. 
Although yeah. she didn't actually, <laughs> she didn't actually take action. She did complain in the media that there was that was entirely not representative of his character whatsoever, and it was only done to driven the plot. The important thing is, after being on the radio with another captain, uh, played by Mary Mastrian, I'm yeah, it's a big old name. Yeah. She's good um, in this. Mastery Antonio, she's Marion in uh, Robin Hood, Prince yeah. of Thieves. They don't know what happened after that radio call. So a lot of this is supposition. So I could understand why people would be upset by it. Also, worth noting, wildly factually inaccurate in parts, it describes Hurricane Grace as a Category 5 hurricane, when in fact it's a Category 2 hurricane, which there is quite a substantial difference in. Three. There's a three difference there. Yeah, well, quite quite substantial, or three. <laughs> so there is lots wrong with it, if you look at it from that point of view, but that's not the point of view we are looking at it from. We're looking at, is it a good film? Ah, I don't know. I wasn't overwhelmed with it. I found it a bit... Eh. These are the men that Bruce Springsteen writes songs about. None... He's, he's quite a lot in the, in the music as well. Yeah. He's in the score quite a lot, is Bruce. Nonetheless... It feels like every decision is driven by a really toxic version of of maleness. There's a couple of... It's very much, I didn't know what to do, so I asked my penis, and now we're doing yeah. this. Gloucester men. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, there's a bit basically where George Clooney's character actually guilt trips them into doing something unbelievably dangerous by, by basically saying to them, are you Gloucester men or are you not? Which is like... On the one hand, quite a flippantly stupid thing, but on the other hand, a really like emotionally abusive way to treat people. Also, yep. there's a bit at the end where Mark Wahlberg, where they're basically about to die, and Mark Wahlberg's character, he's called Bobby, and given that everyone's got a Massachusetts accent, it's, it's just, everybody's like, it's not good, Bobby. It all sounds a bit Kennedy's, <laughs> but he says, well, you know, at least we tried. And you're like, well, at least you tried to what? Beat a storm or make loads of money? Because I'm pretty sure everyone left at home and everyone in the audience is thinking it probably wasn't worth the risk, but they sold it to you as if it was worth the risk, which is weird. Yeah. The two characters who don't get on, Sully, the one whose family were unhappy by the representation, and Murph, who is played by John C. Riley, that's just ridiculous. They're sort of, they go from hating each other to like one saves one's life and then there's this sort of, sort of manly sort of shoulder punching nonsense that goes on. And then John C. Riley later saves Sully's life. Yes. They like, well, you know, absolutely. Tip the tap. Uh, but although somewhat pointlessly, both of those incidents were, obviously. <laughs> uh, we now what a know, waste of energy. Which is an odd thing that hangs over this film. We have to really invest to care if we know that this is going to end badly. This is more Titanic than Chernobyl, I think. Absolutely. In a kind of, kind of it ends badly I way. I think it went for a sort of Jaws aesthetic and a kind of... There's actually someone at the bar called Quint, which I felt must have been a um, uh, a nod to Jaws. Oh, is he, is he the old fisher yeah. guy? Yeah. Who goes, oh, I was there in 69, it was full of fish and yeah. full of weather. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely that, full of weather. <laughs> Great. Um, there's, a, there's an odd side plot that's going on that involves a boat, that, uh, like a, a yacht, that's being crewed by Indiana Jones's girlfriend, uh, Nan Pierce from Succession, and the prison governor from the Shawshank Redemption, which we don't spend enough time with to really care about, but creates so many odd scenes. There's so much strange stuff that I just thought, I don't know, maybe it's because that's the only people that you could possibly even empathise with in this. 
is the idea that you know like when the guy jumps they're trying to get him up in the the carrot the like crate but they can't trying to hoist them up so a guy jumps into the water and they all look really relieved and i thought would a guy jumping into the water make you look that relieved at that point i'd be like what the fuck's he gonna do now he's in it with us <laughs> exactly the whole thing where they were jumping in to that stormy ocean and the effects are pretty incredible i think mm. That they're very. He's good with water. Is old uh, Wolfgang, and he did like dust boot and this. He likes a bit of wet, and but them jumping in and plummeting in, and they're like, keep the lights on them. I'm like, those waves are so high. How are we supposed to believe that they could? And also the, that they I know, could shout, I know they're trained. They could shout over here and anyone would be able to hear it in, exactly. in those circumstances. There's another bit where a couple of, where the helicopter has to dump and a couple of the people are, who are manning the helicopter are pulled out of the water. And re- that saving involves people going, swim over here. That's like the least saving I've, I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. It just, just giving them something to hang on to, basically. So a lot of that was was very... Odd. There was kind of a waiting. There was some stuff. Weather geek can be used for the first time in ages. Whoever has that on their uh, on their sheet, Lucy does. Um, but I just thought it was all a bit. What sums it up for me is the fact that it was all a bit like that montage where they're actually managing to catch fish, and they're all like, "Whoa, fish! Shit, yeah!" And they're all just <laughs> laughing, just constantly laughing. Every shot just is of them like fish. holding a fish, just smiling and laughing and punching each other. And that's kind of what this film is to me. I've talked for ages. Somebody else say something. You said to me when we chose this film or when you chose this film, you were like, it's going to be interesting, given that we know the ending, how they keep us interested and like ramp up the tension and make it dramatic. And I I feel like they failed to do that, to be honest. Mm. I found it for something that is so loaded with drama, I found it quite dull. But also yeah. very manipulative. It did make me cry at the end, even though, you know, they all died. <laughs> but it did make me do some crying. But I think that's just, it felt quite hokey, quite sort of Disney-esque in its approach to the death of six people. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I have said on the podcast before that I'm a big fan of like the deadliest catch and l- gr- giant Yeah, you hunters. love a fish. I love that sort of thing. So I was so disappointed by this because I think, well, I I like when the shark was on board. That was good. There was a little bit of playing around in the the score with kind of Jaws type music. I thought that was was nice. But other than that, I I agree with you. I, I got incredibly bored with it, which when you talk about the, the premise of it, you think, how can you be bored? This is, it's the perfect storm. But it just became, for me, it just plodded a little bit. And I'm going to say something controversial now, but I don't care. It's the last time I'm on it. George Clooney, I think, is is a nice guy. I think he's got his politics in the in the right place. I wouldn't kick him out of bed. I don't think he's a very good actor. <laughs> And oh. I say that from my love. I, I do. I love George Clooney. I've watched a lot of George Clooney things, but because I fancy him, I don't think he's a very good actor. I think he's George Clooney in everything. In this, he was 
still George Clooney, but a little bit grizzled. He didn't even do the accent that everybody else was doing. He was just George Clooney looking like a very handsome fisherman, you know, a little bit perturbed. It didn't work for me at all. So, I know he listens to the pod scene, so sorry, George. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to agree with part of your statement. I personally think that George Clooney is a way better comic actor than he is a drama actor. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin Brothers is good. But yeah. because he is really good looking, he didn't fit into that comedy niche particularly. It was a lot easier to cast him as sort of the matinee idol type. But yeah, I think the stuff he's done with the Coen Brothers, particularly Oh Brother Where Out Thou, he is absolutely fucking hilarious in. Yeah. It's well, but that's interesting because I think kind of, of what you both said, that is the one film I can think of where George Clooney doesn't look like a movie star. And maybe that's why it works, because it is really hard to take away the movie star sheen that Clooney now just has on him. Even yeah. when he's like, obviously, there's three guys or women off set just throwing buckets of water on him. He still looks like a movie star. Mm. Whereas in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He doesn't. Yeah, it's a bit more works. goofy, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. I'm basically agreeing with both of you. Um, I also just wanted to make the brief point that there's something about the words Flemish cap that it sounds like a sex toy. That I just kept, <laughs> I just kept laughing um, every time they said, "Oh God, he's not out at Flemish Cap, is he?" Oh, or a contraception. A... Well, yeah, it sounds yeah. to me something like you might bring up if you had a really bad cold. But sex, <laughs> sex toy, phlegm, fantastic. Either or. I think. Either way, yeah. It's it's full of fish and full of weather. Oh, and that's what you want from both of those things. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Shall we go to the sheets? Yeah. Yes. For the last time, the last shall time. we go to the sheets? And in Dunleavy's case, the memory, the of, memory a sheet. of a sheet. I might be yes. a while, I'm really sorry. Um, I think I've got two. I've got five. Lucy, Dunleavy's like Clooney, weathering her ship of bingo, and we are the women who wait, just keeps cutting to us in a yeah, bar looking are. concerned and watching the telly. But God damn it, we love her. I have five, I think. Oh, right, I'll get my so two out of the way. So, uh, Weather Geek, you've already said that one. I'm going to have it. And I'm not doing Brexit analogy. Um, I, what uh, event that is too important to cancel because they um, decide to not just kind of give in and, and stay. They've got to get back. And that's the reason why they end up fish food. Two. I end on a two. I'm so sorry. Shall um, I do my five? Go on then. Yeah. Okay, nature, you cruel mistress, obviously. Damn bosses, Michael Ironside, isn't he? Given he's not given a good enough price for the fish, so they've got to get back out there and get more fish. Mid disaster punch up. I mean, Sully's punching Murph. Murph's punching Sully. Bobby's got a shark on his leg. It's it's all kicking off. Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Mark Wahlberg from Deepwater Horizon. William Fishner from Armageddon and that shark who bites Bobby I saw in Sharknado and the last Sharknado. <laughs> and finally, Captain willing to go down with ship. He is Let's get out of here. to go down with the literal ship, isn't he? I thought that, yeah. that, that bit's quite interesting. I have, yeah, they're all a bit dodgy, but I have old person sacrifice, which I am saying is right at the start, there was a dead guy. And the entire point of him being dead, an old man, the salty old sea dog has died. And he exists only so we can see, by way of the plot, what it's like when this community loses somebody. 
So I would say he is sacrificed for the point of the plot rather than for somebody else. You don't have to give me the point if you don't want to. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, I can't shout loud enough that a boat can, can, or a helicopter can hear me that far away. Absolutely not. Cassandra ignored. There's all sorts of people who tell them they shouldn't go out. My eyes are CGI. I actually disagreed. I thought at some points it was quite sloppy. Oh, do you think? Yeah. When the the really crazy big waves, I think the bigger the wave, the the less the integrity of it. But if you don't agree with me, you don't have to. And adopt adopt brace position, uh, which they do quite a lot in this um, because really big waves are going to hit them. News reports. You've got six. Oh, I forgot, news that was, I forgot that was on my list. So thanks. There you go. Here to help. Like a local news reporter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, then I end this on a high and a low. I seemingly won with the help of Mickey, but also I had to watch The Perfect Storm, which I will say again. I had actually seen it before. So it once in a cinema when I was clearly bored, even though much like Lucy, I do like things about fishing, weirdly. Fishing, yeah. shit, yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I want to see a montage now of Lucy's next holiday where she's just on, on one of those boats <laughs> and she's just laughing. She's just throwing her head back and holding fish. Standard issue for all women.